I lift up my eyes to the hills, and where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. Amen? This is the God that we worship. This is the God who walks with us. This is the God who is our keeper. This is the God who is the shade at our right hand. And this is the God who, because He lives, we can face tomorrow. We can face whatever it is that's coming into our lives because He lives. I'm so very grateful to see your faces. I'm so very grateful to uh, worship with you all this morning here, both in person. Yeah, amen. Amen. Both, uh, both in person and online, we are together as one church family. We're being held together by this, the strength and the mercies and the goodness of God. Those songs just comforted my soul this morning, and I'm so grateful for their words and the truth behind their words today, and I uh, want to welcome you to Windsor Road, and I'm going to be out at the tent uh, right after services. I'd love to have a moment or, uh, of your time. If you'd love to have prayer together, or just to say hi, wave, uh, we're, uh, we're in uh, strange and strained times but God is good, and He's holding us together. And so uh, I'd love to spend a few moments of uh, conversation with you if, if you if you would like to do that. Now, we're beginning a teaching series this morning called Weep With Me. Weep With Me. And our main text for this series is in Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12. And I'm going to read a few select verses from Romans 12, beginning in verse 9, I'll go 9, 10, and 15. The Apostle Paul says, the Apostle Paul says, let love be genuine. Verse 10, he says, love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. And he says in verse 15, rejoice with those with, who rejoice. And then he says, weep with those who weep. Weep with those who weep. This is God's word. The title of our message this morning is Windsor Road Weeping Church. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for again gathering us together. And we are uh, we're both gathered in this room and in rooms all over. And what makes the gathering holy is not you, it's, uh, it's not the room, it's you. You are why this is holy ground. So, Father, would you just please open our hearts, open my heart, help me get out of the way, 
so that what you once said gets said. For your glory, for the good of your people, I pray this in your name. And the people said, Amen. Amen. So in July, a group of us from Windsor Road joined congregations over our Champaign-Urbana community on Wednesday evenings. And we went about uh, various neighborhoods on Wednesday nights. We spread out in groups of 8 to 12, and we prayed uh, out on street corners and out in parks and out in uh, our schools. And the media in town reported that the church came to pray. The church came to pray. And not churches but the church. So white congregations and black congregations and Latino congregations and multi-ethnic congregations, Asian Pacific congregations, many congregations, one church. And we came together in prayer for our communities and our neighborhoods. We, we prayed for conversion. We prayed for revival. We prayed for unity. We prayed for peace. We prayed for the cessation of gun violence. We prayed for our schools, for our educators. We prayed. We prayed. I thought about that experience, and my mind raced to Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 and 10. The Apostle John says, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number. From every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. I thought about that. Then I thought about the Great Commission. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, make disciples of all nations, all authority, all nations. I thought about that. Then I thought about the Lord's prayer. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It is God's will that he bring together from every nation and tribe and people and language. It is God's will that his promise in Genesis 12 To Abraham, be fulfilled that through you, Abraham, all nations will be blessed. I thought about that. And then I thought that God has graced our church with a taste of that reality. You know that, don't you? Nearly 40 nations are represented in our church family. That is a taste of our eternal homeland. And I savor that taste and Consider what Paul said in Philippians chapter 3, verse 20. That our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body into the likeness of His glorious body by the power that enables Him even to subject all things to Himself. Now think with me. If our citizenship is in heaven... And it is. What best describes our relationship to the world in the here and now? What is that? 
Well, Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 5.20, more than citizens, we are ambassadors. Ambassadors. Therefore, Paul says, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making His appeal through us. Ambassadors. Embassy. What's an embassy? It's a piece of the homeland on foreign soil. That's what an embassy is. And that is who we are. We, this is a facility. We are an embassy. We're a piece of the new heavens and the new earth on alien soil. That's our primary identity. Of course we have other identities. Our primary identity is that we are ambassadors for Christ. God making His appeal through us. Now it's really important that that truth is just etched in our souls as we begin a teaching series on lament titled, Weep With Me. Because any discussion about lament, any, any conversation, any teaching in which God is calling us to a behavior must begin with identity. God never calls you to an activity without first telling you your identity. He always tells you who you are before He tells you what to do. So in Exodus, this is why the Ten Commandments show up in Exodus chapter 20. The first 19 chapters of Exodus, God is telling His people, here's who you are. You are delivered, rescued people. Now here is how delivered, rescued people behave. Ten Commandments. In Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, the message begins with the Beatitudes. Blessed what? Are. Are. This is who you are. In Paul's letter to the Ephesians, chapters 1 through 3, deal with doctrine. While chapters 4 through 6 deal with direction. In Paul's letter to the Colossians, chapters 1 and 2, deal with identity. Chapters 3 and 4 deal with activity. In Romans, chapters 1 through 11, deal with the indicative, the isness. Chapters 12 through 16 deal with the imperative, the oughtness. Is comes before ought. Who you are in Christ always precedes what Christ expects you to do. And here is the glory of the gospel, church family. We who were once enemies of Christ are now ambassadors for Christ. Is that not the grace of God or what? That God would take enemies, enemies, and adopt enemies into children. And those children then are sent out as ambassadors. We who were once lost in irreligion, lost in religion, lost in immorality, lost in morality. But when the kindness and mercy of God our Savior appeared, He saved us not because of righteous things we had done, but because of His mercy. 
My story is the story of how an enemy of Christ became an ambassador for Christ. And that's your story. God be praised. So what I want to do, based on that truth, I want to spend this Sunday and the next five Sundays in a continuing education module. That sounds like something we would hear in our university community, right? A continuing education module. I want us to study together in the King's School of Diplomacy. I want us to be equipped with further ambassadorial training. Ambassadorial training. And specifically, I want us to go to language school because the tongue is the chief tool of the ambassador. And need I remind us that the ambassador never speaks on his or her own behalf but always on behalf of the king. Now, let's be immersed in the king's language. What is that language? Well, it's not Greek. It's not Hebrew. It's not Latin. Not English or Spanish or Mandarin. It's, I want to immerse us in the biblical language of lament. Lament. Lament is the language of the king. And so this morning, I want to answer four questions. What is lament? Let's define the term. Secondly, why must we lament? Thirdly, what must we lament? And finally, how must we lament? What is lament? Why must we lament? What must we lament and how must we lament? Are you ready to go to work? Say amen. All right. (laughs) What is lament? Lament is the language of the empathetic, all-powerful king. That's what what lament. Lament is tearful prayer that leads to total trust. Lament. Lament is the voice of an exile In a foreign land. Lament acknowledges the reality of pain while affirming the promises of God. Lament cries out to God for justice at the injustice of earth. Lament sees the broken world and seeks the all-powerful God. Lament is pain which clings to hope. Lament sits near the rugged cross, but is never far from the empty tomb. Lament is a bridge between pain and promise. Who taught you to cry? No one did. The day you were born, you protested. To cry is human. To lament is Christian. And when we lament, we are responding to the reality of suffering. We are pursuing God, even in our hurt. We are relentlessly hoping that God will act. 
and we will not give up hoping. That's lament. That's question number one. Question number two is, why? Why, why must we lament? Why must we lament? <laughs> well, Americans don't like to lament. We like to party. We like to celebrate. We like to be up. We like optimism. We come to church, we expect it to be up. We want a spiritual booster shot. And in our, in our culture, words like lament, sorrow, grief, brokenness, and torment, those emotions don't, don't carry much credibility. Oh, okay, they happen, but let's fix them so that we can what? What? Move on. Move on. And our health... Wealth and happiness culture wants us moving on. And if you've lived outside our borders for long, you would know that in places where Christianity is growing, few Christians there would regard uninterrupted emotional highs as normal Christian experiences. You know, one of the principles in Celebrate Recovery which is one of the ministries in our church family. One of the principles is this. Things get worse before they get better. And so when we admit that we're powerless and that our lives have become unmanageable, whatever surface symptoms of unmanageability exist, deep down at the bottom of the iceberg, and remember, when you see an iceberg, you're seeing just 10% of it above the water. Deep down at the bottom of the iceberg is a cancer that must be exposed and confronted. And lament is, the, uh, lament is the courage to acknowledge the cancer. Lament is the resolve to feel hard emotions. Lament is brave enough to take a deep dive into the secret places of the iceberg. Places you don't want anybody else to see. Places that you don't want to see, but you need to see. So we must learn the language of lament. We must learn the language of lament for three reasons. First, it's biblical. It's biblical. One of the most prominent themes in the book of Psalms is lament. One scholar identified uh, about 70 of the Psalms are lament. 70 of the 150 psalms are lament psalms. And the cue or the signal that you are entering a psalm of lament is typically the two words in the first verse, O Lord. O Lord. That's a signal that you're entering lament. In Matthew 5, 4, Jesus said, Blessed are those who mourn. That's the word lament. Kaio. It sounds like the Greek word kao, which means to break. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who lament, for they shall be comforted. Lamenting to God and lamenting to God together in Acts chapter 20, verses 37 and 38. We read, and there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul 
and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all of the word he had spoken, that they would not see his face again. So connected relationally, Paul was with the elders at Ephesus that when he told them that they, they, they weren't going to see his face again, they, just, they all just all wept together. They lamented. And then Romans 12, 9 and 15. Let love be genuine. Love one another with brotherly affection. Weep with those who weep. When, when was the last time you had a good cry over someone else's pain? What does it take to get people to care about a tragedy they've not experienced personally? Well, lament does that because it's biblical. It's biblical. Lament is meaningful. It, it's meaningful to the current climate in our culture. Listen, we're not three months removed from the brazen, racially motivated killing of George Floyd. And I have a sickening feeling that many predominantly white churches have just mentally moved on. Okay, the pastor acknowledged it in a sermon. Okay, there was some stage time. Now let's move on. I don't believe we should move on. I believe we should come alongside our black and brown brothers and sisters in Christ and lament with them and affirm their pain. We... We have brothers and sisters in Christ who still do not feel safe before the law, who, who feel that they cannot go out after sunset for a pleasant evening walk in their neighborhood outside the house they paid for because someone may call the police. These are brothers and sisters who attend our church. We're not moving on. We're moving forward. And lament is how we move forward. And learning lament will prepare us for the next racial incident. Because there will be one. This is a sinful, broken, fallen world. And learning lament will get us through COVID. We're not over it. And it will get us through this election season. What a storm! What do we need? We need lament. We need a language that will cut through the defensiveness and hardness of hearts. And we need to prepare now while at least there's some semblance of peace. I, I have a prayer book called The Valley of Vision. And here's a, here's a part of one prayer. It reads, Oh God, teach me in health to think of sickness. In brightest hours to be ready for darkness. In life, prepare me for death. Let's, let's be prepared, church. Because we're ambassadors, right? Amen? It, it's the Stockdale paradox that we spoke of last week. The Stockdale paradox. You must never confuse faith that you will prevail in the end, which you can never afford to lose, with the discipline to confront the most brutal facts of your current reality, whatever they might be. So lament is biblical, lament is meaningful, and lament is gospel. And what I mean by that is that you are never more like Christ than when His tears flow from your eyes. 
I think about that passage of Scripture in Luke's Gospel when Jesus set His face to Jerusalem and the cross. Luke 19.41 says, Jesus drew near and saw the city. He wept over it. That's the word lament. Saying, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they're hidden from your eyes. You just don't want to hear it. And that's, that just broke Jesus' heart. Lament is about the heart of Christ and the tears of Christ. You know, often in difficult conversations, we go straight, we, we go straight, well, I'll put this, I'll own this. Often when I'm in difficult conversations, and specifically with my wife, whose name is Sarah, I find myself going straight to statistics and talking points. Okay? And uh, so, for instance, years ago when our older son Benjamin was enrolling at the U of I, uh, he spent his first semester in Allen Hall. And, uh, you know, one evening Sarah and I went out for dinner and she was reminiscing about, you know, motherhood and her little boy growing up. And it was one of those, you know, cats in the cradle moments, you know. Child arrived just the other day, came in the world, and you know that. So I thought I'd be helpful. Yeah, write, write this down. <laughs> so we, we, we drove by Allen Hall on our way back from the restaurant. And she was reminiscing some more. And we drove by Allen Hall and then meandered through school and then up to Clark Park where we live. And as we pulled into the driveway there at home, she was done reminiscing. And I said, you know, Sarah, I get what you're saying. And, and I just want you to remember this. 2.45. And she said, What? I said 2.45. I said, that's 2.45 miles. That's the odometer reading between Allen Hall and our house, 2.45. And what that means is that when Ben is at church, at youth group, and we're at home, he's further there, that's 3.6 miles, than when he's at college, 2.45 miles. She said, that's not helpful. I said, but I'm not wrong. She said, but you're not helpful. See, you're, you're not wrong and you're not helpful. Okay? <laughs> the way forward is not an appeal to facts as a first resort. Lament is a language of empathy. Consider these five levels of communication. Cliché, facts, opinion, feelings, transparency. Cliché is the shallowest, and the feelings, transparency, are the deepest. I, I'll never know what it's like to be in your skin, but when you come to me with level four feelings, and I stay in lawyer land at level two, that's not helpful. No one is denying facts, but if you want community, you've got to drop down to level four before resurfacing to level two. 
Facts are a first and last resort in a court of law. But, in, but marriage, family, and church relationships are not a court of law. We've got to stop and feel before we go to facts. And lament says, I'm here. I'm safe. I want to listen. I want to be helpful more than I want to win a debate. Lament says, let's go to Jesus about this together. He can help. That's why lament matters. It's biblical. It's meaningful. It's gospel. Question three. What must we lament? What must we lament? Two answers here. First, we must lament individual sin. Sin, sin does sin that's done against us. See, that needs to be lamented. And David does that in Psalm 41, verse 9, when he says, he, David suffered deep betrayal. Psalm 41, 9 says, Even my friend in whom I trusted, one who ate my bread, has raised his heel against me. He was betrayed. And he laments that in Psalm 41, 9. Sin done against us. And then sin done by us. So lament is how you feel when the full gravity of spiritual bankruptcy falls, falls upon you. And, and David also lamented that in Psalm 51.4. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So David laments sin, and, and you know what? <laughs> we need to lament self-righteousness. So both sin and self-righteousness need to be lamented. Self-righteousness wants us to justify our existence on the basis of attributes that make us better than other people. Our race, our religion, our enlightened non-racism, our suffering, our powers of intelligence, our, our relative lack of overtly sinful behavior, our, our religious activism, you name it, and we can, we can, you name it, and we can become a Pharisee about it. We can feel superior and then think that God should be impressed. I remember in my first graduate seminary class, I was asked by the professor, Randy, if you were to stand before God and he were to ask you, why should I let you in heaven, what would you say? And I replied, because I tried to faithfully preach your word. <laughs> I got an F on that one. And my professor reminded me, the truth of Isaiah 64, 6, your righteousness is as filthy rags. And so is your best sermon, Randy. Well, that's negative. It's truth. It's truth. And truth will set you free. We must lament individual sin. Sin done by us. Sin done against us. And then we need to lament corporate sin. Corporate sin. The book of Genesis tells us that God created this world and He created the man and the woman to be the pinnacle 
of all he made. God does not want graven images representing him because we are his images. We were meant to display the glory and the grace of, and the goodness of God. We are meant to represent him. We are meant to govern God's world. And, and, and Genesis implies that in the cool of the day, God walked in this temple garden regularly to meet with Adam and Eve, enjoying com community togetherness with them. It was a perfect paradise. But in Genesis chapter 3, a crafty serpent spoke. Did God really say, followed by, you will be like God? And the man and the woman took the bait. And this world's been broken ever since. And the sin in the garden was the sin of idolatrous othering. Adam othered her. This woman you gave me. See. And later on in Genesis, Genesis chapter, well, with the murder of, of Cain and Abel, and uh, uh, Abel by Cain. Again, this, this, am I my brother's keeper? This othering. And then in Genesis 11, we see it happening in the Tower of Babel. Proud people tried to build a self-glorifying structure, and the Lord scattered them. Othering ensued as rebellious groups turned against God. Now they turned on one another. And so now instead of human dignity and value coming from God, sin-infected people sought human dignity and value from isolated community. And so we start loving our groups, our ethnic groups. Our social groups, our cultural groups, our economic groups, and academic groups. Erwin Entz speaks about this in his helpful book, The Beautiful Community. He writes, because of sin, when we see cultural and ethnic differences, we don't embrace our dissimilarity, we immediately distrust. We instinctively reject and often mock because we're still confused and we don't understand each other. And then Irwin says this, You have no idea how much your understanding of what it means to be human, to live a good life, to experience love, to be a friend, husband, wife, and worker is shaped by your group. Distance desensitizes us. And without proximity, there's no empathy. And the root of racism is an idolatrous othering. Racism is the presupposition that one's own ethnicity is superior or better than another. And this denies that all people have been created in the image of God. But we need to go deeper than what I just said. Because it's more than just individual prejudice. It's prejudice plus power. Group power. The collective misuse of group power that leads to injustice. And one of the most disastrous forms of corporate idolatrous othering resulting in group power has been committed by pastors and theologians. Did you know that passages such as Genesis chapter 9... Verses 25 to 27 were once interpreted to justify American slavery and the subjugation of Africans. It, so in Genesis 9, Noah's three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, 
In Genesis 9, Ham dishonored Noah, and Noah cursed the youngest son of Ham. Genesis 9.25 says, Cursed be Canaan, the lowest of slaves will he be to his brothers. Guess who white American and European theologians associated Canaan with? That's right, black Africans. In his excellent book, From Every People and Nation, A Biblical Theology of Race, J. Daniel Hayes writes, In the antebellum American South, this verse was appropriated by clergy to justify slavery. After the American Civil War, the curse of Ham was used by white clergymen to fight the notion of racial equality and the rights that would accompany such equality, such as voting, education, etc. In 1889, one editor wrote, So long as the two races must live together on American soil, the black man must occupy a position of inferiority and that Ham must be subservient to Japheth. And some might say, well, that was 1889. Not so fast. In 1980, a reprinted copy of the preacher's homiletic commentary illustrated the fulfillment of the curse of slavery on the descendants of Ham, stating, it is well known that most of the nations of Europe traded in African slaves. And that theological heresy... Ideas have consequences, church family. In 1995, the Southern Baptist Convention publicly repudiated its racist roots. In 1995. In October of 1998, Bob Jones University forbade interracial uh, dating appealing to the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11 as man-glorifying unity which God has not ordained. They've since renounced this heresy. But, but we're, we're not that many years removed from a heretical position that was popularized in the United States to justify the subjugation and slavery of God's image bearers. That's what I'm talking about when I'm talking about corporate Sin, And you may say, Randy, you, well, you don't believe this. No, I don't. And you've never taught this. No, I haven't. But I am the product of a system that has tolerated such heresy. And that's why I lament that the very doctrine of total depravity teaches that sin has left nothing untouched. It's in every crevice of creation. So there's no point in being defensive because there is no defense. What I need is to lament with a poverty of spirit. There is no defense, but there is an advocate, and his name is Jesus Christ. And only Jesus can help. Let's go to him. Let's go to him. He said, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Do you want the comfort of God? 
that you let his son's tears flow from your eyes. And those tears will wash you and cleanse you and release you. How do we lament? Hmm. Well, very quickly, turn to Psalm 13. Psalm 13 is one of the 70 psalms of lament. And I just want to introduce us to a template of lament. And I want you to think of these four words. Turn, complain, ask, and trust. Turn, complain, ask, and trust. Listen for, those, listen for the themes of those words as I read Psalm 13. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Come and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. This is God's word. Turn, complain, ask, trust. Turn, there it is. You see it in verses, verse 1, O oh Lord, O oh Lord. To turn is the answer to what some of you are thinking right now when I even talk about lament. Because some of you are saying, I don't have the energy. I don't have, I don't have the energy to lament. You know, I'm trying to figure out school. I'm trying to figure out work. I'm trying to figure out my kids. I get it. I get it. Someone once said, God's office is at the end of your rope. And when I hear people say, well, God never gives us more than we can handle, I don't believe that. He does give us more than we can handle so that we will come to Him and turn to Him and rely upon Him. Turn, complain, that's verses 1 and 2. And then ask, that's verses 3 and 4. And then trust, that's 5 and 6. That's how you lament. That's the language. What does it take to get people to care about a tragedy they haven't experienced personally? There's the tragedy of severe weather. A third of the corn crop in Iowa is gone. That's a statistic to me. It's someone else's farm. There's the tragedy of COVID. There's the tragedy of working in COVID while educating your children, while getting your own education. There's the tragedy of racism. What does it take to get people to care about a tragedy they haven't experienced personally? It takes the heart of Christ in your life to produce tears of Christ from your eyes. And when the heart of Christ beats in your life, the tears of Christ will flow from your eyes. I'm weepy here this morning. 
three hours ago. My mother met Jesus. Huh? Yeah. Yeah, we should clap. We always spoke Sunday morning. I'm so glad I called her last night. And even if I hadn't, there was nothing unsaid between my mom and me. Nothing. So when Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted, that, that, it's meaningful to me. And I want you to be willing to walk into lament. And I'd like for us to do that together here as a church family so that, so that we will be skilled, and poised ambassadors of the king. Skilled and poised ambassadors of the king. Someone said, someone said this, they said, Jesus said, weep with those who weep, not judge whether or not they should be weeping. Just weep. What if our community saw a thousand of us proficient in the language of gospel grief? What if our community said, these people know how to grieve? You know, who is their God and how can I know him? A little later on, Katie's going to give us some activities that we're going to be participating on as a church. Um, I've got them up here, but I think, Katie, I'd rather you do that. I love you all. Pray for me. Gracious God, you are so good, and we love you so much. Help us, Lord. Help us, help us. Help us become skilled and fluent in the language of lament. Help us to enter spaces, not as Americans, but as ambassadors of an eternal kingdom, one that will never, ever pass away. Thank you. Thank you for taking our hostility and transforming it so that we are privileged to be your ambassadors. And the church said, 